0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, we believe that the Bible is God's Word to His people. That means... When we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12-14. to Through Silvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. As does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Uh, God, as we uh, look at your word this morning, as we in many ways seek to bring the whole message of 1 Peter to bear on this cultural moment for our city, uh, we do ask, God, that you would strengthen us by your word, strengthen us by your spirit. So that in our city, which we love so dearly, a city so lost and so in need of the gospel, uh, that we might be uh, a light to its people. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. For this sermon, you really you, every sermon you should have your Bibles open, but especially this one. Because we're not going to just work through one passage, we're going to be all over 1 Peter. So, if you've got a hard copy Bible, use that, it's great. If you've got a phone, use that, it's acceptable. Um You know, uh, for for those of you who aren't familiar with the events of this week, uh, if you can, allow me to recap them uh, for you. Uh, On Monday, just a few days ago on Monday, uh, the Essendon Football Club appointed Andrew Thorburn as its new CEO. Now, Andrew also happens to be the board chair of City on a Hill, a church here in Melbourne. Now, shortly after his appointment, reports surfaced about a sermon that was preached at City on a Hill all the way back in 2013. And in that sermon, the preacher compared the tragedy of abortion with the atrocities of concentration camps in the past. And an article from 2013 was also reported, which included this line, practicing homosexuality is a sin. Now, as soon as these reports came to light, the Essendon board, they demanded that Andrew make a choice. Simply, your church or your club. I think by now most of us know which way he chose. He chose his church, and within 30 hours of his appointment, he resigned as CEO of Essendon. Now, there's going to be a lot of commentary. There already has been. And I don't want to overstate its significance. In many ways, I think what has happened is not so much anything new as so much to reveal what has already been true. But I do think, at least on an external level for us, this is a watershed moment for Christians living in Melbourne. The heat around this week, it will fade very quickly, as it always does. The new cycle will turn. But the temperature for everyone who lives for Jesus in our city has clearly increased. And just speaking and listening to uh, many of you this week, I know that some of you feel unsettled, wondering what does all of this mean for all of us? Though some of you have noticed the irony of the moment, haven't you? Isn't our timing preaching through 1 Peter almost providential? Uh, It's almost as if God has been working throughout this series to prepare us for this moment. And, even more conveniently, we happen to be in between two sermon series right now. So I want to do something just a little bit different today. As I said, normally we'll take a passage from the Bible and seek to preach through it. But today, I want to do something a little bit different. Uh, I want to look at the whole of 1 Peter and apply its broad message to this cultural moment. We're going to be looking across the breadth of this book and seeing what would the Apostle Peter say to Christians living in our city this week? What would Peter say to us here in Melbourne? And if you've been with us over this series, I'm guessing that you should almost be able to write my sermon outline. Point number one. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. The thing I love about 1 Peter is his knowledge of how human beings work. Boss, can I say, I was surprised? Uh, because this week, right, Peter says don't feel surprised, and we're surprised. Because I think this week feels so close to home. When we read of incidents that happen in other cities, other countries, we can kind of distance it. But no, in many ways, this is our city. And... In many ways, City on a Hill is kind of similar to our church. We share the same doctrine. Our pastors trained at the same colleges. Many of us have friends who go there. One person once said to me, "Crossing Crown is pretty much City on a Hill. You just don't look as good." Um, speaking for myself. Speaking for myself. And unlike the Israel Falau case, Andrew Thorburn didn't actually say anything. He didn't actually do anything. No, his sackable offence was simply to be associated with a church like ours. So you'll have to forgive me, but I was surprised. Because I thought, it could be one of us. And then I read 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. You see, friends, persecution and pressure are situation normal. They're situation normal. If anything, we've adjusted to life in the historic minority. And if the world did it to our Lord Jesus, why would we think that they wouldn't do it to us? In chapter 2, verse 4, Peter writes that Jesus is the living stone who was rejected by people. And then in the very next verse, what does he call us? He calls us living stones, just like Jesus. So why then should we be surprised when we're rejected like him? No, chapter 4, verse 1, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. Suffering for the gospel is situation normal for every believer in Christ. In fact, we should almost expect that what happened to andrew thorburn or at least something similar may very well happen to us we should expect that there will be economic costs not for evangelizing your friends at work not for posting something on facebook no economic costs simply for being a christian one of the most interesting articles that I read this week on the Sydney Morning Herald was written by the business columnist uh, Elizabeth Knight, and I want you to hear and read what she wrote in her article. Quote, The controversy that has since engulfed Essendon is a clear sign of the changing times. A decade or two ago, corporations and their stakeholders may have tolerated Thorburn's association, with a church with strong views on homosexuality, homosexuality and abortion, but not... Today, but not today. Can you hear what she's saying? This is the business columnist in the Sydney Morning Herald for the Fairfax Press. She's saying that the companies who employ many of you sitting here may not tolerate your association with a church like ours. And Peter says we need to be willing to bear that low level, ongoing economic cost. As your pastor, I feel bad, right? On a human level, I don't don't enjoy seeing this happen. But there will be jobs that we will not be offered simply because we belong to a Bible-believing church, especially positions of corporate leadership, public administration. Even some jobs in health and education will be much harder for Christians to occupy So let me ask, are you willing to never realize your career ambitions for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to never realize your career ambitions for the sake of the gospel? Are you willing to be overlooked for a promotion, rejected from a job, pressured to resign? Though the question, are you willing, might not be sharp enough because we can ask, are you willing, but it still feels abstract. Now, here's my question. Do you expect to sacrifice the career you love for the sake of our Saviour who loves and died for you? Do not be surprised at the world. Peter would say, instead, live in such a way that surprises the world. Live in such a way that surprises the world. I just love this quote. This is what the head of the Purple Bombers said earlier this week about everything that's happened. Quote, Andrew made the correct decision for himself and the football club, but I did not expect him to choose the church. Isn't that great? I did not expect him to choose the church. He did not expect Andrew to choose the Lord. And that's what Peter's getting at in chapter 4, verse 4. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. Did you see what's going on? There's two surprises that are happening. We should live in such a way that is not surprised by the world, but a way that surprises the world. We should be living lives that surprise the world by our refusal to bow the knee to its culture. We should surprise the world by rejoicing in God's design for marriage and sexuality. We should surprise the world by our greater identity as God's children our greater security in his spirit, our greater inheritance in his son. Do you live a surprising life? I love it. Peter's honest, isn't he? Some people will be surprised by who we are, and here's their reaction. They'll hate us for it. They'll slander us. Just like some politicians have said this week, they'll call us intolerant, hateful, and bigoted. Don't be surprised. But it's not the whole story. Because in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says that others will observe our good works. And what will they do? They'll glorify God on the day he visits. In chapter 3, verse 2, there will be unbelieving husbands who see the pure and reverent lives that their Christian wives live and so be won over to the Lord Jesus did you see what Peter's saying? Every Christian must live a surprising life that the world will either love or hate. But indifference is not an option. Indifference is not an option. Uh, one English bishop once said, uh, where St. Paul went, they rioted. Where I go, they make tea. Uh, and it's very similar, isn't it? First, just, There's nothing worse than to be irrelevant to be not noticed, to be ignored. No, we need to live in such a way that surprises the world know that we value something far greater. We, We need to live lives that shock this world by showing them that we don't need their approval because we have God's glory. That's why Peter says we can rejoice as we share in the sufferings of Christ because chapter 4 verse 14, if we're ridiculed for the name of Christ, we're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on us. We have his glory. We have his honour. We have his approval. Our joyful suffering can surprise this world. And it shows this world that for all our shame, for all the bad name that we might have in the media, no, we are honoured by God. And that's all that truly matters. Don't be surprised by the world's hatred. Surprise the world by our Savior's love. Don't be surprised. Number two, don't hit back. You could have guessed it and you can write the rest of the sermon. Don't hit back. If you want to feel angry, if your blood pressure levels are feeling just a little bit low and you need to bring them up, go online and watch the um, Sunrise interview that Guy Mason did with David Kosh. Um, it'll get your blood pressure up. I have to admit, um, I don't think I'm a naturally angry man. Okay, some of you don't believe me, but I haven't been this angry in a very long time. I mean, angry at Essendon, angry at the media, angry at the Premier for the comments that he makes, and in my anger, you just stop and you go, my gosh, it's so easy to want to hit back against the world. And I understand just a little bit better how these Christian exiles in the first century must have been feeling as they suffered unjustly for the gospel. This is wrong. But what does Peter say? Whether you're a Christian citizen under a pagan empire, a Christian slave serving a non-Christian master, or a Christian wife married to an unbelieving husband, don't hit back in anger. Don't hit back in anger. Honour everyone. Submit to those above you, even those above you who persecute you. For in chapter 2 verse 20 he writes, When you do good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favour with God. Don't hit back in anger. No, honour the relationships that God has put you in. Honour the government that we submit under. Maybe you were really upset with what the premier said about a biblical view of sexuality and the unborn. That's not a partisan comment, but maybe you just wanted to let the whole world know exactly what you thought about him. But Peter reminds us in chapter 2, verse 13, submit to every human authority because of the Lord. Verse 17, honour the emperor. So please, if this is your natural bent, please resist that urge, that impulse, that desire to post inflammatory comments on social media. Even if you don't vote for him, please don't be like some Christians who I saw this morning when I woke up and went on Facebook, which you should do after you read your Bible. and, And you'd see it. Christians just... Call him the Premier, don't call him Dictator Dan, don't, don't demand that he be tried for crimes against humanity, it's just not helpful. We have a greater example, we have the Lord Jesus. And Peter wants us in chapter 2 verse 21 to follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted. And here it is, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He he believed that God will bring about the justice that only God can truly bring about. He points back to Isaiah 53, where Jesus, a suffering servant, willingly submitted to death. And was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Just think about that. Jesus suffered but he didn't hit back at anger. Instead he submitted to death. So that he might bear the sin. And save the souls of the very people who were killing him. He chose to bear the slander of this world. So that he could save the world through his suffering. If you're not a Christian, you you might wonder, why does this God you worship, this Jesus, willingly suffer an unjust death? That just seems foolish. Because He loves you. Because He wants to save you. He submitted to death so that you might live for righteousness, so that you might stand before God forgiven. Sisters and brothers, we need to follow in Jesus' steps. We must not hit back. But let me be clear. It doesn't mean that we should not seek justice. And it doesn't mean that we should remain silent in the face of evil. Refusing to retaliate does not mean tolerating sin. In fact, we've seen right out of this letter, Peter calls us to stand firm in doing what is good. And sometimes doing what is good might mean stopping someone from doing evil. So speak with respect, but do not remain silent. Speak up, highlight injustice, defend the vulnerable, but please don't do it out of a heart of anger or revenge. Speak out of a heart that trusts God to judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous. We don't have to fight the world. Because our God fights for us. Please don't hit back. Thirdly, I don't know if it's up yet, but please don't put... Oh, well, see if you can guess it. Don't step back. And to be honest, this is actually the risk that I'm far more worried about, more than anything else. You see, I'm not worried about persecution and pressure per se. Our expectations are relatively adjusted for that. Here's what I'm afraid about. I'm afraid about the chilling effect that this week's events will have on our Christian witness. People are, you know, low-key hysterical about it. You know, we're all going to be locked up, not anytime soon. The bigger threat is that we'll go silent. Because let's face it, after all of us here have seen what happened to Andrew Thorburn in a corporate workplace setting, the great risk for us is that we'll step back out of fear. And that will step back out of shame. But hear these words from 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. Isn't that beautiful? Don't be ashamed. Uh, here, here's the risk, right? Here's the risk. We see the economic cost, we see the potential consequences for our job of being a Christian and then we go silent. We see what could happen and then we run dead on our witness. We no longer mention our faith in our job interviews, if indeed we already were. We go to the bottom section of our resumes under hobbies and delete church involvement. We hide our social media presence from our colleagues. We meet other Christians a few blocks down from 333 Collins Street just in case someone sees us. But here's the even greater risk. That out of our shame, we'll abandon God's Word. We might still publicly identify as a Christian, but oh no, 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 we're not that kind of Christian. We're not that kind of bigoted Christian. We're not really that Christian who believes in the sanctity of life or the complementarity of marriage. But the great risk is that we'll make Christianity respectable. That we'll step back from God's good design for marriage as a union between a man and a woman for life. They will step back from God's love for for the pregnant mother and the unborn child and quietly allow this world to take the lives of yet more children. The, The great risk in this cultural moment is that out of shame, we will step back from the gospel. We will not outright deny it. We will just not speak of it. But if one generation assumes the gospel and the next generation falls silent on the gospel, I can guarantee you the next will reject it outright. Peter says in chapter 4, verse 16, let us not be ashamed, but let us glorify God in having that name. You see, friends, we might be shamed by the world, but we should not be ashamed of our God. We should wear Jesus' name with joy. Because just like in chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus was rejected by people, but what? Chosen and honoured by God. And so too are we. In chapter 2 verse 6, what does God say? See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honoured cornerstone, and the one who believes in Him, you who believe in Him, will never be put to shame. We might be shamed by the world, but we are honoured by God. And in the end, however we might be mocked and ridiculed in this world, we will one day stand before God vindicated. It's that message in chapter 4, verse 17, we might be judged by the world today, but the world will be judged by God forever. So don't step back out of shame. And don't step back out of fear. I have to admit, I'm that sort of guy where if something like this happens, and I'm reading the Bible with someone the next day, I find the, the bigger Bible so that I can, you know, just be noticed. Like That's just my bent. It's, it's, it's sick, really. Uh, I used to write articles for the ABC, and then you read the comment thread of people just flaming you, and I'm like, oh, great, I'll write another one, right? No, different this week. Different this week. Um, on Thursday, at things were at their height. I was reading the Bible in a cafe with one of the uh, men here from church, and I have to admit, I was feeling a little bit nervous. I did look over my shoulder. I did wonder what people were thinking. And then, out of the corner of my eye, a lady stands up, walks up to our table and taps me on the shoulder. I froze. You have to understand that the last time this happened to me, someone came up and said, it's so good to see you two young men speaking English. So I was a little bit traumatized uh, from people walking up to me saying things. And I wondered, what's she going to say? And I looked up and I was like, yes. And she looked at us and said, good job, boys. Keep it up. What a gift of God in a moment of fear. And in this cultural moment, don't we feel a bit like those Christian exiles? Afraid. Afraid of losing our job. Afraid of being called a bigot. Afraid of being found out to be a Christian. But I want you to notice how many times Peter urges us, don't fear the world, fear the Lord. Just, just look, chapter 1, verse 17, and I'm going to adapt these words so that you can see that word fear. Chapter 1, verse 17, you ought to conduct yourselves in fear of God, not man. Chapter 2, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, not man. Chapter 2, verse 18, household slaves, submit to your masters with all fear of God. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that they may be won over without a word when they observe your pure and God-fearing lives. And chapter 3, verse 14, do not Fear them or be intimidated, but in your heart regard Christ the Lord as holy. It's almost as if Peter has one big message, don't be afraid. Don't step back out of fear. For when we fear God, we have nothing else to fear. In chapter 2, verse 25, what does Peter assure us? For you were like sheep going astray, but you've now returned. To the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Nothing can harm you when your shepherd protects you. Nothing. Nothing can harm you when your shepherd protects you. In chapter 3, verse 22, we read, Jesus has gone into heaven where he is right now, and what's he doing? He's at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers under his feet, subject to him. Jesus died to conquer every earthly and spiritual power. And what's he doing now in heaven? He's proclaiming victory over every soul that has ever stood against him. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of corporate Australia. Don't be afraid of any politician. Please, really, don't be afraid of the lynch mob of Twitter. Just don't be on it. We only need to fear the Lord. Don't step back in shame. Don't step back in fear. Instead what? Two words. You stand firm. You stand firm in who you are. Maybe I'm the first one to say this to you this week, but um, if you'll allow me. Uh, Fellow Christian, uh, you are not a bigot. Uh, You're not intolerant and you're not hateful. Of course, the risk is that if we listen to the media and, and, and politicians, we may just start to believe that's true. We may just start to believe, well, I guess that is what the gospel is. I guess that is what Christians are. But it's not. Don't believe it. Why else do you think that Peter spends the first two chapters of his book reminding us of who we really are? Chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, you're chosen by God, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally known and eternally loved. You've been purchased by the blood of Jesus who died for you. You don't don't belong to this world. You belong to Him. Chapter 1, verses 3 to 12, you're a child of God. You're His son. You're His daughter. And God, I love this in a time where we feel so unsafe and insecure. Peter says, God is keeping us for heaven And is keeping heaven for us. Isn't that beautiful? You see, you might lose your career in this world. Some of you will lose your career in this world. But you can't lose your inheritance in the next. Isn't that wonderful? Chapter 1 verse 13 to chapter 2 verse 3. You're you're holy like God. I feel so different, Adam. Peter says, you're supposed to. We're redeemed out of this world, so so why should we expect to be welcomed by this world? No, no, don't worry. Chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, you're honoured by God just like Jesus is. Look to his life. He was rejected. He was shamed by this world, but remember, he was glorified by God in heaven. You have a name that no one can tarnish. You have a name that can be dragged through the mud by the media that God will exalt in glory. So do your worst. Let them say what they will. You know who you are. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. So that you might proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Stand firm in who you are and stand firm in who you are by living out the purpose for which you've been saved. We've just read it. To proclaim the praises of our God. So don't see this moment as a tragedy. Don't see this moment despondently. Don't stop calling yourself a Christian. Don't stop mentioning the church in your job interviews, on your resume, on your first day of work. If you haven't been doing it, start doing it. Don't stop telling your colleagues every Monday morning how much you love the people of God. Don't stop rejoicing in the gift of marriage between a man and a woman for life. Don't stop protecting women in crisis pregnancy situations and the unborn children they carry. And don't stop proclaiming Jesus' name to every lost person in your life. Stand firm in who you are. Stand firm in who God redeemed you to be. And stand firm in doing good, whatever the cost. We've seen it, haven't we? Chapter 2, verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Chapter 2, verse 15, it is God's will that you should silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Chapter 2, verse 20, when you do good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Chapter 3, verse 16, it is better to suffer for doing good. But Peter wants us to be a people who do good in our world, yes, who honor the government over us, who honor the government who's hostile to us, to be good citizens who care for the poor and needy in our world. He wants us to be people who honor our employers by being workers who are diligent and not lazy, even those who give us flack for following the Lord Jesus. He wants us to be people who honor our non-Christian families by preserving those bonds of love between every member of the household, even if some of them don't follow the Lord Jesus. But we have to understand, sometimes the world will see as bad what God declares as good. Sometimes the world will see as bad what the world declares as good. I mean, chapter 2 verse 12, it says that when the world sees our good works, what will they do? They'll see our good works, and yet they'll slander us as evildoers. And haven't we seen that all week? The world sees God's good design for marriage as as oppressive. Or it exploits and kills unborn children whom God created in the womb of women whom God loves. It's a different moral framework, an inverted moral vision. So if we stand firm in doing what is truly good, we must be willing to bear the cost. The cost of being slandered, of being ridiculed, of being insulted. But here's the great motivation, right? Was not Jesus willing to bear the ultimate cost to do the ultimate good? Was he not willing to suffer and die so that he might save us from judgment and hell? we, We must follow in the footsteps of our master. We must be willing to do as he has done, to bear the cost of doing what is ultimately good. We must be willing to bear the cost of proclaiming the praises of our God. We must be willing to bear the cost of living as his people according to his word. We must be willing to take necessary risks. To live in holiness and to advance the gospel. Even if the world deems it wrong. And Peter asks, who knows? Who knows? Maybe the world might see your good works. They might hear your good news and they might turn to God. Maybe they might be like the Gentiles in chapter 2 who will glorify God on the day he visits. Maybe they might be like that unbelieving husband of chapter 3 who is won over by the witness of his Christian wife. Stand firm in who you are. Stand firm in doing good. You know, I suspect that the worst... Let me, let me offer what the worst reaction to this week might be. Well, I can think of a lot of them, but one of them, Right? One of the worst reactions that we can have to this week's events is to be so afraid of suffering that we, that we retreat. Christians have done this throughout history, right? What will we do? Oh my gosh, it's all going to hell. So let's pack our bags, flee to the mountains, buy a ranch somewhere, put the walls up and batten down the hatchets. Fear is what drove Theodore to Helm's Deep, right? But with God keeping us for heaven, we don't need to be afraid. So if we don't need to be afraid, why are we playing defense? Why are we retreating? You see, it might not look like it on the outside for the slave, but in chapter 2, verse 16, what does Peter say to the slave? You're actually a free people. And you should use that freedom to proclaim the praises of our God. And so it might not look like it, right? In this moment, you might go, oh gosh, we're pressured people, we're, we're a persecuted people, we're, we're a marginalized people. And Peter goes, oh, sort of. You're a free people. You don't belong to this world. They can't hurt you. So don't be afraid. In fact, let, let me offer, our greatest days of mission and evangelism lies ahead. It was said at a Gospel Coalition meeting recently that two phenomena are happening right now. Number one, the culture is more publicly hostile against the Gospel, as we've seen. But number two, mission, evangelism and conversion on uni campuses has never been better. Both are true. And has not God's church flourished most under persecution and pressure? Is not the blood of the masses the seed of the church? It's true. We've entered a new cultural moment, and this week's events have just showed us what was already true. But in that moment, heed Peter's call. Don't don't be surprised at our suffering. Expect it. Don't hit back in anger. Respond with Grace. Don't step back in shame or in fear, but stand firm. Stand firm in who you are. Stand firm in doing good. Stand firm in the grace of God. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, steadfast to him be the power forever and ever. Amen.